This is Bill Duffield, producer for Center Maryland's The Lobby podcast. Today's episode is a recording of a panel discussion uh, that was part of the legislative breakfast held at St. Agnes Hospital on January 9th. Okay, thank you everyone. Uh, good morning and welcome to St. Agnes. Uh, really appreciate everyone taking some time out of a busy schedule. I think this is technically the first full week of the new year, and I know how difficult it is. Things get ramped up pretty quickly after the start of uh, the calendar year. So thank you for taking some time out and joining us this morning. Uh, special thanks uh, for those members of our board and our foundation um, who are with us this morning. Also wanted to recognize uh, President and CEO of MHA, Melanie Griffith, who is uh, able to join us this morning. Someone I just met this morning, a uh, new councilman, uh, uh, John Bullock. I'm sorry if I'm missing the name. And then also uh, Terry Learman, uh, his daughter was with us the last session we had. And really appreciate the fact that he was able to join us this morning as well. Um, this is one of the more exciting events that we have uh, throughout the course of the year if you enjoy this type of dialogue and conversation. Um, we're going to deviate a little bit from what we've done historically and just have a number of presenters. We've decided to opt for a panel discussion. And hopefully what you're going to find are some targeted questions around uh, policy and some of the challenges that we're facing on the front line with our caregivers and our teams to where you'll hopefully see some of the alignment uh, that we have anticipated to be discussed uh, this morning. So in running through the run of show uh, with Olivia yesterday, uh, she informed me that if we've got time at the end, we'll open this up for Q&A and I think the best way that I can ensure that we have that time is to be very brief in my opening comments. So with that, I'm going to turn it over to uh, who is slowly becoming or quickly becoming a friend, uh, Councilwoman Felicia Porter, who also has uh, an MPH and healthcare policy running through her veins, and couldn't think of a better moderator for this morning's discussion. So thank you. Uh, sentiments of um, your leadership here at Ascension St. Agnes. Um, so, <laughs> so thanks so much. So thanks so much everyone. Um, thanks so much to our panelists for joining today. Um, I'm quickly going to just kind of share um, a little bit about each panelist and then to um, the panel discussion. Um, so first I'll start with um, Chair Jocelyn Pena Melvin. She has been a member of the Maryland House of Delegates for over 15 years and is currently serving as the chair of the Health and Government Operations Committee. Um, before holding office, Chair Pena Melnick served as the uh, worked at the U.S. Attorney General's office under Eric Holder, and her committee in the House deals with public health, and she has great strides. She has made great strides to improve healthcare by making it more efficient and in line with the needs of everyday members. Let's give Chair Pena Belnick a <laughs> Then we have our new incoming delegate, Delegate Malcolm Ruff. Um, he's a newly appointed representative for District 41 in the Maryland House of Delegates and is a member of the Appropriations Committee, very important committee for healthcare speaking. He has been a member of the Maryland State Bar since 2012 and is a trial attorney at Murphy, Falcon, and Murphy. 
and he's also a founding member of the Pena Project, a nonprofit to support residents of underserved communities and to address homelessness and street violence in Baltimore City. Let's give Delegate Ruff a hand. Next we have uh, Marie Grant. She serves as the Assistant Secretary of Health Policy for the Maryland Department of Health, uh, where she leads legislative, regulatory, and overarching policy initiatives. Um, she's a state and federal health expert <coughs> with significant private and public sector experience in healthcare policy initiatives and strategic communications. Um, an attorney by training, Marie began her career in the Maryland Department of Legislative Services, where she served as counsel to the Maryland Senate Finance Committee. Let's give Marie a hand. We have one of our healthcare heroes, Dr. Ashley Kinder. Um, she joined the St. Agnes Medical Group in 2014 and currently serves as the Medical Director of Population Health and Primary Care. She is a board-certified internal medicine and pediatric specialist and received a prestigious clinic clinician award from the University of Maryland Department of Pediatrics. She serves on a number of professional organizations such as the American College of Physicians, the Gold Humanism Honor Society, and the American, American Academy of Pediatrics. Her interests include complex and public health and population health. So last but certainly not least, we have Ms. Aya Kennedy. She serves as a registered nurse of the St. Agnes Mother and Baby Unit and is also a health policy expert leading and informing coverage on reimbursement policy development at commercial health care plans such as Medicare Advantage, Medicaid, and TRICARE. She has nearly two decades of clinical practice experience as a registered nurse and adult in pediatric clinical care. Let's give Ms. Hanoud a round of applause. Discussion um, with really diving down into, you know, just as we approach this next Maryland General Assembly and each of your roles, how were you able to move the needle in public health? And we'll start with Chair Payne Melnick um, because serving as the chair of the Health Development Environment, Health Care Operations and Government Committee, um, what are some of your goals that you see for the committee in the next general assembly? Thank you, and uh, thank you for having me. Good morning, everyone. It is really an honor to be with such an impressive um, panel, truly. And to see some of my friends, Chair um, Griffith, um, and my former Chair Pete Hammond, um, who, if I do something wrong today, you blame it on him. Because <laughs> he used to be um, my chairman, and um, I learned a lot from him. So on our committee, our goal has been um, access to care, right, and health equity. Um, we learned a lot during COVID, and we looked at the data. And the data show we have 23 counties in Baltimore City in Maryland, a little over 6 million people. And what the data show is that at the height of COVID, Prince George's County in Baltimore City, right, had one of the highest um, number of COVID-19 cases. And the zip code in the entire state with the highest number of COVID-19 cases was 20783 at the height 
which is the immigrant community. So if you think about it, why is that? It's because of those social determinants of health, right? It is the way they live, right? The way we live, the lack of education, lack of money, transportation. And it wasn't a surprise at all. So we responded, right? One of the bills I put in was a bill that required implicit bias training for all healthcare providers, which is so important. And it took a lot of negotiation with the health community to get them to the table to agree to do the course. Um, and then we created a health equity um, commission that the secretary is working on. So I say that to give you a framework of where we're going. Where we're going this session is still working on access to care, right? Because we did well by expanding Medicaid on the Pete Hammonds chairmanship, by expanding Medicaid, by creating a health exchange, by establishing a reinsurance program, right? All those things. But there's still 350,000 people in Maryland that are left uninsured. And 275,000 of them are undocumented individuals who get their primary care at the hospitals, right? And when you look at the wait time and all these other issues, it affects that. So we're going to work on access to care. We're going to work on uh, the wait time for hospitals, which is horrible. We have the worst wait time in the nation. We're going to work on assisted outpatient treatment program for mental health because it's another issue um, as well. So, and the workforce shortage as well. So we have so much to do this session. Um, a lot of challenges, right, because the budget is tight, but we certainly have the commitment and partners like yourself to get the work done. So we're excited. Thank you so much for that. You know, some of the things, you know, some of the priorities that you just mentioned that kind of bring true health equity, access to health care, making sure we have an expanded workforce um, that really rings true with our post-pandemic society of health care. Where we are in our public health and healthcare delivery sphere um, is really reimagining how we do health care. So I'm so grateful that you are at the helm leading that charge because we are in uncharted borders here. Um, many of the hospital institutions, they are figuring this out and they're really not only figuring it out, but also developing new technologies, new uh, initiatives, such as the mobile healthcare initiative on how on how we deliver healthcare. So I'm so grateful that you, you shared that. Um, we're gonna transition to Delegate Brown as a new, um, as a new delegate. Can you share, uh, you know, given your experience, how your overarching initiatives and priorities will kind of triage and integrate within public health and healthcare delivery? Thanks, Councilwoman. And uh, good morning to everybody. It's great to be here with you and I really appreciate the invitation. Uh, to get to talk with you all uh, on the eve of my uh, first day in session. <laughs> and um, I, I'm really looking forward to standing up and uh, being a part of the leadership of this state. Uh, as you heard, I am a trial lawyer by trade, uh, trained by uh, the incomparable Willie Murphy. And uh, my focus as a litigator has primarily been in the space of police misconduct. Um, so we do a lot of civil rights matters, and so uh, a lot of my focus and study has been in criminal justice, obviously, 
Um, so, you know, I think it's, it's right to have a little, you know, at least one fish out of water on this panel. Um, but uh, it's given me the opportunity, honestly, to um, be able to center my focus and understand just how integrated uh, access to healthcare is to all the issues that uh, I think are important to our communities. Um, and this one is, is very prominent. Um, but I think it ties into some of the initiatives that I am thinking about and working on uh, as I enter into um, this, this first legislative session. Um, so one, one of the things that I am working on is a, a bill that would permit, well, well, before I say what the bill is, I, I think my general philosophy uh, as far as um, being a leader in this district and, and in our assembly um, is to not only just improve the lives of you know, our constituents, but to make sure that we're focusing on those who've been ignored historically. Um, and if you look at the 41st district where we are right now, uh, glad to be uh, in my home district today, um, there are certain areas of this district that have been uh, completely ignored. Um, and it is necessary to build uh, economic development, uh, to, to create social equity, and to ensure that the environments that our children are growing up in uh, are environments that foster their well-being. Each of us is, you know, the sum of our mind, body, and spirit. And if we're not fostering uh, positive environments around that, um, if we're not feeding positivity into each of those elements, uh, we are failing, especially our children. Um, and opportunities are a critical piece of that. So I am sponsoring a bill, and it's being uh, cross-filed by Senator Carter, that will allow folks that have criminal records uh, the opportunity on a case-by-case -case basis uh, to present their case to a judge to try and get that expunged. And why do we do that? So that folks that uh, don't have the opportunity to engage in the job market as fully as many, as most of us in this room, um, will have that second chance. We'll be able to uh, develop a case for themselves, right? By generating uh, evidence that shows that they deserve it um, and not having a complete ban on certain types of crimes. So um, I, I think that, that that feeds into um, these, this idea of fostering uh, and facilitating uh, the mind, body, and spirit wellness of our community, right? Uh, we need to create jobs. We need to, number one, build up our business districts, Emerson Village, the Liberty Heights Corridor, and Park Heights. Um, so those are the things that I'm really focused on, making sure that we are um, working to develop an environment in West Baltimore and across the state um, that really facilitates opportunity for everyone. And I'm so, I'm so grateful that you shared about the environment because as we realized um, during COVID, we realized that our environment and our communities are really, really important to the everyday mental health, everyday behavioral health, social health of not only our families but our workforce. And you, you hinted, but you know, I know you, you said you're a fish out of water, but I'm going to connect the dots for you. 
because I think that it's really important um, that you bring a unique opportunity um, given your trial history experience um, into public health. And so as many know in this room, there are so many fingers that touch healthcare delivery system and the criminal justice system is just one of the many systems that touch a person and how it impacts their everyday health, it impacts their healthcare access. And so providing that pathway for an individual as they are coming home to get a second chance, not only just allows them to have access to jobs, but it allows them to have access to public services such as Medicare, Medicaid, such as our education system, such as our healthcare system, whereby they are able to be whole persons kind of moving back into and reintegrating back into society. So, you know, when you talk about, you know, your incoming kind of experience, you bring such a unique opportunity that I want you to lean into because Delegate Pena Melanie here is going to be needing um, <laughs> not only that experience um, and that uh, kind of passion for the criminal justice system, but also bringing it and tying it into the everyday lives and the environment of our communities. When we are talking about building healthy communities, we're not just talking about healthcare access from the institution. And uh, Ascension say that is such a great job with that. It's not just healthcare access, it's not just providing um, uh, healthcare delivery, it's all the social factors that deal with that whole person at the end. So I thank you for, for really taking the time to delve into that experience because what you're doing is great work and it directly ties into public health. Uh, lastly, you mentioned our healthcare workforce um, and having a, um, not our healthcare workforce, I should say, but our public service workforce, our police officers, our healthcare workers, um, who quite frankly uh, were just and I keep using the word heroes, but heroes um, during our COVID-19 pandemic. Um, not only did they show up to work every day, but they, they had thoughtful, thoughtful leadership, thoughtful leadership um, in our emergency rooms, in our uh, ambulatory surgical centers, um, in our facilities um, to really steer the ship of healthcare during uncharted territories. Um, so we're going to transition to Marie. Um, I want to focus on your role um, at the State Health Department. Um, it is by far probably one of my favorite agencies in the state of Maryland. Um, I think it does amazing work. Um, can you talk with us um, how uh, the agency has reimagined how they are doing healthcare access and healthcare delivery um, post COVID 19? Yeah, thank you so much, uh, Councilwoman, and good morning, everyone. It's such a pleasure to be here with you all today. I was telling some folks earlier, I live in Catonsville. This is my community hospital. I had both my children here, and um, my dad actually receives excellent care at the congestive heart failure clinic here. So I just want to say thank you for all that you do uh, for, for my family and my community. It's really great to be here. Um, uh, so, so I rejoined state service in March um, under the leadership of our fabulous uh, Secretary of Health, Dr. Laura Herrera-Scott, um, who is, if folks don't know her, she is amazing. She is such an expert and she is like that energizer bunny. She is <laughs> um, uh, uh, doing, uh, moving a million miles an hour to really improve our healthcare system. Um, uh, the first thing she did and the steps she took as she walked in the door, um, as you mentioned, Councilwoman Porter, is really to 
transition the health department from the COVID-19 emergency world to where we need to go for the future. And so that was moving a lot of our COVID-19 work into the day-to-day -day operations of the health department um, and you know, um, uh, building that public health strength going forward. Another big initiative that we've been dealing with as a result of the end of the public health emergency is Medicaid renewals. So Medicaid, um, a program that in April served 1.8 million Marylanders, um, uh, hadn't gone through the renewal process um, for those Marylanders in quite some time. We had to start that process per federal law in May. And so outreach, education, working with Chair Peña Melnick and partners in the General Assembly and in healthcare, we've done a really good job in limiting um, the numbers of folks who have um, who aren't responding to their mail, essentially, right? There are some folks on the rolls that aren't eligible for Medicaid anymore. We want to make sure they get into the right coverage that they need. But our biggest policy worry has been those folks who are eligible for Medicaid but might be falling off as a result of education. So that is an ongoing process that we're working with uh, through the winter and the spring. Um, workforce, and you'll hear a lot of similar themes, right? Workforce. In our state, folks have done heroic work um, and are also tired, right? Um, tired, a lot of vacancies, a lot of retirements, and so making sure that we are supporting the workforce that we have as well as having opportunities for folks to come in uh, uh, to the department um, and build up our public health work. Uh, 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 equity, I know you all mentioned, and we talked about health-related social needs and social determinants of health. I think that's where we all need to look through the future. The Secretary is deeply committed to embedding equity and data-driven policy into everything that we do across the work of the department. And, and finally, I'll just touch on behavioral health. Um, I think that uh, as, again, the public health emergency has expired, we had a behavioral health crisis prior um, to the COVID-19 epidemic um, that it's, or the pandemic, it, you know, it's even more of a problem. And so one of the secretaries, one of the department's key focuses is uh, working to bolster the continuum of behavioral health care. Um, there was a down payment investment in uh, last year's budget uh, to, to help us further develop our crisis response system our prevention system, but we're going to be keeping uh, on with that work. Uh, we have a fabulous commission on behavioral health care access and treatment as a result of legislative leadership that's bringing um, many stakeholders together to, to see how we can bolster that uh, care and finance that care long term. So those are just a few of the many things we're working on in the Department of Health. Do you think that you all working on? So I've heard equity, I've heard workforce, I've heard really yeah. focusing on um, the social determinants of health. Um, but one of the things that I want to undergird with the priorities is that the passion and that we are still here. You know, I, I know uh, Secretary Maria Scott um, pretty well at Oklahoma work, and she, like, um, Marie just mentioned, uh, has really hit the ground running. It's really revolutionized um, the state agency, um, really taking an opportunity to look at it in a different lens um, and really put the charge forward um, to the, to the uh, 
health care workforce across the state of Maryland. So um, as a public health scientist, we are you know, greatly appreciative that we finally have that leadership in the Maryland Department of Health. And, and I should be things. Um, next, we're going to transition to um, Dr. Ashley Pender. And just to kind of connect the dots a little bit for the audience, um, given that you are a primary care um, physician, you saw firsthand um, the ebbs and flows of healthcare access, um, not only just pre-pandemic, during the pandemic, but you're also seeing it post-pandemic as well. Um, can you share some of the priorities as a uh, physician? What are some of the priorities of a primary care practitioner um, to kind of really re-engage our communities into primary care? Thank you, um, everyone, for having me here today. Um, so as a clinician, uh, it may not surprise me that I, I truly believe strong primary care is foundational to addressing many of the challenges um, we face in our state. And um, importantly, many of the things we've discussed around um, behavioral health care and social determinants of health often land in our primary care offices. Um, with many of the care transformation efforts, um, and Maryland is uniquely positioned, um, with the Maryland model to absorb more of this in our systems and healthcare, but certainly we are not always the ones who can address those interventions. So partnerships with community-based organizations and others who have the expertise in things like housing um, or other connections are, are critical for our success. Um, our healthcare system before COVID was very fragmented. Um, we've all experienced that in various levels, probably in our own lives, but for our patients who are experiencing more social determinants of health, that fragmentation is exponentially higher. Um, I've had patients um, end up in the ER with dental pain. Why? Because dental care is separate. Behavioral health care is separate. Why do we have these uh, kind of silos in our services? And many of them are historic. So as I look at kind of policy and legislative initiatives going forward, I agree that access is critical, um, and workforce development is critical, and equity. I um, like to use the quintuple aim from IHI as kind of my framework when I'm thinking about a policy or legislative initiative that someone asked me my opinion on. Um, so for those who are not familiar, this started out as the triple aim and has kind of evolved over time. Um, so the first and foremost question I ask when looking at kind of what do I think about this for, uh, is how is this gonna affect my individual patient? Um, and the more that we're able to have the voice of that individual patient um, woven through our structures, I think that's critical. We do that with patient family advisory councils or, or other strategies, but how do we make sure that we continue to do that and weave it into the structure so that it's not just a suggestion, but it's a standard and norm. The second piece is how does this affect my population, right? So how do we look at healthcare outcomes and make sure that when we implement or design something that not only is that co-designed, but it actually is going to impact the things that we want to see change. Um, and then very importantly, um, looking at our clinicians and the impact on our care teams. That of course includes our providers, but it does include all of our care teams. We know that uh, multidisciplinary care is critical to success and we need to develop our workforce um, to complement that. Not just um, our physicians and, and advanced practice providers, but all of our disciplines that help support our patients and their various needs. Um, we've seen great success in development with um, outpatient care management and care coordinators, community health workers, violence prevention, peer recovery coaches, disciplines that I think 10 or 15 years ago, we just weren't seeing them integrated into primary care um, and services the way we are now. 
And then importantly, equity. And equity has to be thought about before you design something, not as an afterthought. Um, I, I often will say, you know, as we're designing something, who do we hope to help, but who can we accidentally harm? Um, you can worsen disparities unintentionally. And I think sometimes we uh, need to be mindful that it doesn't need to be an intention to be the outcome. And so that has to be critical when you're thinking about what are we designing with our policies. And then lastly, although very importantly, of course, is cost and that quintuple aim. And um, we all are realistic, right, of the costs that we need to consider. Um, and one of the challenges that I think we all face in the policy development is many of the things that we're trying to measure are improved don't change over the fiscal year, right? They change over um, a long amount of time. I think maternal child health is a great example of that um, because when we make an intervention in pediatrics, many of our traditional measures that we use for success in healthcare, whether it's hospital readmissions or PQIs or, or the like, they don't change as much in the pediatric population, but you will improve the long-term health of that child for years to come in a way that they just don't have great systems to measure. So while I don't have a great solution for that, I, I do think it's important to consider that when we look at how we evaluate um, our needs going forward, really going upstream when we're able, um, and really addressing those structural barriers to care, because that's where we can make that long-term sustainable change that outlasts our fiscal year or you know, um, programmatic policy. And I thank you for that. And one of the, the highlights of your, just your statements as of now, just the diversity of our healthcare access teams. Um, you mentioned about five different professions that, uh, you're right, about five, ten years ago, we were not able to kind of clearly define um, who and what served um, on those care teams, like our care coordinator, um, like our community health workers. And these are some of the <coughs> professions that have essentially and, and historically have been taken up by neighborhood people. Neighborhood people that know their communities, they know the ins and outs of their particular community, so that they're able to impact that person's that person's healthcare, and then scaling it up to a population level. So that's amazing that um, you know here at Ascension St. Agnes, you all are really thinking through how we can diversify our care coordination teams to really impact communities. So I really appreciate that. And then lastly, we're going to transition uh, to Ms. Canoe. Um, she, you know, I, I know that um, nurses, I often remark that, you know, doctors are amazing, but nurses are really the glue that, that really keep the hospitals running, moving. Um, so talk to me about, um, you know, some of the issues that you've seen post-COVID-19. Um, and one of the issues that I know that you have great experience in is our mother and baby unit. Um, which is a uh, population and an audience that, um, in my opinion, needs more attention in this Maryland General Assembly um, as we are seeing the legislation change in that respect. So, Thank you. I think post-COVID-19, what I've seen as a nurse and a clinician is people are sicker. Right During COVID, we just didn't go to the doctor. Telehealth has been great. A lot of the provisions that have been put forth, set forth by CMS have been great, you know, with um, reimbursement parity. I think all that's great, but people are sicker. So now we see that, and especially in the maternal child space, right? We have more and more women with chronic hypertension, um, diabetes, right? And it's, it's, it's really an important conversation because all of that contributes to the total cost of care. And we talk about disparities, we talk about social determinants. I, I feel they're all the same. 
What we see here at St. Agnes, we have a large undo undocumented population. Um, there are also language barriers, which can make care very difficult to deliver. Um, there, um, so I think from that perspective, what we don't see is doula care. We don't see as much doula care, and I understand that the state of Maryland now offers that as a covered benefit. And as nurses, I'm really proud of the work that all of the nurses do in the maternal child health space at Ascension St. Magnus. Everyone's fabulous. We work our hearts out. We enjoy what we do. We, our goal is to just educate our patients so when they leave, they know when to seek out care. They know when to return if they need to. But it's not enough. With doula services, uh, you can greatly impact um, health outcomes. I will mention that um, March of Dimes actually made a report in 2023 that uh, notes that the state of Maryland is actually slightly above national average in terms of its low-risk C-section rates. And what that means is for low-risk C-section is that it's a, it's a first-time mom, she's having a single baby, and the baby's head down. So she's ideally positioned for birth. But why are our um, rates overall higher in Maryland? So now with the coverage of doula services, I would really like to see expanded access. I would really like to see there are disparities in terms of how those services are accessed. I think what would also be helpful for us in the maternal child space um, is that we know that there's culturally competent providers. We have a huge need for bilingual providers, especially, especially Hispanic providers. So it would be nice to see legislation that supports funding of doula programs or payment of um, train, support training programs to recruit um, and retain high quality certified doula providers and you know build a campaign around making those services highly accessible. We see moms stay longer because of their blood pressure. We see babies get admitted more to the NICU because mom's blood glucose wasn't controlled during pregnancy. And, and now I think this is fabulous because all patients can actually, I mean, undocumented individuals, all women can actually access free um, child, I mean, healthcare services through Medicaid. But many of the women that come through our door who are undocumented don't know they have access to these services. Uh, they're getting it after the fact. So I think Medicaid, um, through our MCOs, there's a unique opportunity to campaign for doula services that are highly effective. And the reason why doulas are really important is that they build a relationship with the woman. They build trust over time. And that is what impacts and improves outcomes. When you trust someone, you're going to listen to them. Right, they're your person. And what they're doing is uh, providing emotional support they're also providing tactical, uh, tactile support, right, touch. Um, there's also appraisal support, right, where they're building the woman's self-confidence in her ability to get through labor. There's also informational support. And um, that's especially with our uh, bilingual um, patients who are Hispanic. We do our best here at St. Agnes um, to make uh, language services available. We do a great job, in fact. But if you had a doula, who has built a strong relationship with the woman throughout her pregnancy or at any point that they can trust, you're gonna have a higher impact. We talk about our rates being 30%. I mean, Maryland rate for low-risk C-section is currently at 30%. The national rate is about 26%. So we have some work to do there. This is where doulas can actually make an impact. Um, in terms of late to care, meaning women that um, have less than, uh, 
50% of prenatal visits or the access care after the fifth month of pregnancy. We're currently at 17% and the national average is 15%. So this is again where doulas can provide significant support for maternal child health populations. Um, and maternal coping during labor is an important variable. Right? If a woman gets tired and doesn't want to do this anymore, she's going to give in. And all in all, care becomes more costly. Right? Taxpayers are paying more for care at the end. The bundle becomes more expensive. So this really uh, benefits all of us at the end of the day. Definitely, yeah. and I'm so on integrating doulas into this space, and you also highlighted on um, uh, comprehensive care for the mother and child. Once the woman is pregnant through pregnancy, after pregnancy, and how that impacts the child. And so when we talk about um, Governor Westmore, when he talks about some of the, the issues uh, related to education, um, as we're seeing our, our young people um, having universal pre-K, it starts with what you're saying, it starts with the mother. And so it starts with that expanded healthcare approach um, that I know that the Secretary um, is really, really focused on. Um, I'm gonna pivot back to you, Marie. What are some of the other legislative priorities that we should be focusing on or hospital institutions should be focusing on in this next General Assembly? Um, we've talked about workforce, we've talked about um, expanded care, we've talked about equity. Um, how are you all kind of formulating that into a comprehensive agenda? Because I want to make sure that as we have so many stakeholders in this room, we really unify to have a charge forward at the start of the Maryland General Assembly tomorrow. Yeah, thank you so much for asking that. So one of the, um, as a Chair Penny Melnick has seen, um, uh, the Department of Health hasn't done departmental legislation in a little bit. Um, that changes this session. <laughs> um, uh, so, so there's, um, uh, we have uh, a handful of pieces of legislation that as a department with the support of our chairs and the policy committees we're moving forward. Some of these are just cleanup bills, right? Like, like really uh, a, a cleaning up statute. Um, we have some legislation relating to tobacco to, to align our uh, state law with our federal law. Um, we're really concerned, one of the pieces of legislation actually has to do with congenital syphilis. We're seeing um, a pretty alarming rise um, in uh, congenital syphilis. That shouldn't happen. That should not be a thing in Maryland. And so we do have legislation moving forward that would require testing for that. Um, uh, uh, during during pregnancy and, and some care coordination to go along with that. Um, and then finally, as I mentioned, behavioral health. Um, there's um, so departmental uh, legislation uh, uh, making some tweaks to some of our behavioral health processes and um, keep an eye out. There may be some administration legislation uh, relating to some more significant policies that we need to address along our continuum of care. Wonderful, and I'm so grateful also that you shared that this is the, you know, the department hasn't kind of pushed forward a legislative agenda um, in some time, and so the topics that you know you kind of shared surveillance, um, making sure that we have behavioral crisis management, um, those are all great priorities that each one of us in this room can kind of really get behind, providing our own scope and our unique scope as it relates to that particular legislation. Um, I'm going to transition back to our, our delegates. Um, you know, as we go into this Maryland Journal Assembly, um, 
um, as you've heard some of the agency priorities, um, can you talk to me how are you going to communicate that to our lawmakers all across the, the state? Um, we realize that there are very diverse jurisdictions in the state of Maryland who have a understanding of public health that may differ from those in Baltimore City and other counties. Can you share how you're going to um, kind of corral and herd the cats um, in order to make, to make the legislation move forward um, so that our practitioners, our nurses, and our agencies can really move forward in that respect? So we're ready. We have done it. So we started working in the summer, um, bringing the different parties together, right? So anyone that knows me knows that when I introduce a bill, I don't wait till session to tomorrow. My bills are already worked out or we're halfway there. Okay. So we start, um, honestly, in June. And I started, for example, on the access to care bill. I started by having a meeting with about 40 different um, stakeholders. And the hospital association is, was actually part of it regarding the access to care bill, right? You talked about the um, documented population and how it's really stressing the healthcare system, right? Because they go to the hospital, they don't have coverage. It is their primary doctor. Um, they're living in our communities, right? You have to ask yourself, do you believe that healthcare is a right? I do. Should everyone have access to it? I think, you know, that the answer is yes, right? Because it's a humane thing to do. So basically, when you look at the uncompensated care, when you look at our waiver, it affects that. When you look um, at the ER weight as well, and also, when you talk about prevention, right, and, and public health, uh, it's either you pay now or you pay later, right? So we, I brought about 40 people together, and we decided, look, um, I, I'll be very frank. I talked to one of the main um, nonprofits, CASA, and I said, you cannot be just the face of it, because undocumented are not just Latinos. They're undocumented from Africa, undocumented from Asia, undocumented from India, right? So it has to be, we have to build a coalition to be able to have a stronger voice. And we started doing that work um, so that they can come together to Annapolis and say why this is important, right? I met with the Secretary of Health. She knows this is a priority. I met with the Maryland Health Benefit Exchange and it's, they're supporting it, right? Um, and basically the bill will allow us to seek a waiver from the federal government, a 1332 waiver that was granted, by the way, to Washington State, Oregon, Illinois, to be able to allow undocumented individuals to purchase insurance from the public exchange, because right now they're not allowed by the federal government. There are no subsidies and it can be done with existing resources. It should be done. So we're gonna try to do that as well. We put in the bill, I put in the bill that expanded Medicaid to um, document to pregnant women. So why did I put in that bill? I got a call from a 17-year-old who was seven months pregnant and had not seen a doctor. And then I started calling around and I was able to get her care, but it was so late, right? And then I found out through the fiscal note that I, in that particular year, there were 5,000, almost 600 women that came to the ER to give birth. 
that have not seen a doctor, right? So we put in that bill to expand Medicaid to undocumented women while they're pregnant and four months after they give birth. It went into effect last July. Do you know how many women have signed up? Marie. I believe we're over 6,000. Over 7,000 yeah. women, okay? <laughs> to seek this waiver is that before that bill passed, the hospitals were paying for all yes. of that. Yes. Almost $100 million. Because we got the waiver, the federal government is paying 65% of it. So we are saving money. So it's so important to be innovative, to be creative. And legacy building. Absolutely, yes. And so the reason why, and, and again, I'm gonna transition to you in a moment, but the reason why I wanted to wanted you to kind of share the stakeholder engagement um, for that particular legislation is not only just to kind of give an account of you know what you all have been doing and the progress that you all, so they are already hitting the ground running on tomorrow. You are prepared, you are ready, but it also speaks to the coalition building of healthcare and public health practitioners in the state of Maryland. Um, they, across the state of Maryland, healthcare delivery and public health access um, is very different in each jurisdiction. And you all in this room are going to have to be on the front lines um, testifying at these respective hearings, really focusing and laser focusing on the policies that are being introduced. As a former as a former emergency person intern, I will watch zero one zero one Uh, experienced legislators like you, 
uh, to be able to move forward and be creative. Um, my mind really goes to uh, behavioral health and, and mental health. Um, working with organizations like Project Numa and Mentoring Male Teens in the Hood and Next One Up, these uh, rites of passage mentoring programs that focus on social emotional learning. Um, I think it's something that I would very much like to convey to our colleagues. Um, I think working with the Legislative Black Caucus, which uh, I've plugged in uh, since being appointed in July, um, would, would be, uh, I think, uh, an initiative that, that people can, can certainly identify with um, and understand the importance of it um, and talk about how it, it, it plays into uh, our healthcare system because we have uh, such a huge issue going on with young children, um, especially in Baltimore City, um, who aren't able to have a grip on uh, their, their mental health. Um, and it plays into this uh, media frenzy that, that has been, um, you know, kind of distorting the narrative uh, about our children. Um, so I think we have to push resources serious resources into social emotional learning, into mentorship, into uh, these uh, programs like the ones that I mentioned, and I actually sit on the board of Project Numa and Mentoring Male Teens in the Hood, along with, with John here. We both sit on the board of Project Numa. Um, it, is, it is essential um, that we pour uh, these resources into our young people um, because, as you know, coming out of COVID, um, it has only been exacerbated um, to, a, to a degree that is just probably untenable at this point. And we're seeing the results of that. Um, furthermore, we have to fully resource our juvenile justice system and create programs that are not going to send young people back into our communities um, without skills, without uh, the, the ability to obtain opportunities. And I, I'm, I, I'm, I'm tired of hearing people say, you know, we want to create jobs. We need to create careers for our young people. We need to create pathways for our young people. We need to create uh, real passion for our young people. And so those are the things that I think I would be focused on. And I think working with the caucuses that are um, dedicated to those, those causes um, will certainly be something that we can accomplish during these legislative sessions coming up. And I love that. And, you know, as we round out um, this panel discussion, um, I'm so glad that you ended on that note because um, what you touched on was reimagining how people in the state of Maryland see Baltimore and how we exist and engage in Baltimore and how as we move forward in this next 90 days we are really going to be steadfast in making sure that public health is, is at the center, healthcare access is at the center, equity is at the center, our workforce is at the center um, and so we have some work to do and I'm sure that every person in this room um, is really, really focused on assisting you all in any way possible so um, let's keep around applause for our panel. Thank you again uh, for such an engaging and interesting conversation this morning. Uh, really appreciate it. Um, wanted to, to thank Olivia and Damien, who I don't think need an introduction.
doing an amazing job of making the connecting points with our stakeholders in the community to align with the work that we're doing here uh, as a ministry. So thank you both for all the work that you do, both at the forefront as well as behind the scenes. Uh, certainly appreciate it. Um, and uh, I could hear my parents kind of chirping in the background when we kicked this off and had breakfast without praying over our meal. Uh, so I'm going to reverse this a little bit. Um, I'm going to ask Father Mike uh, Murphy to join us for a concluding prayer, uh, and one that will hopefully bless our ministry uh, as we lead into this new calendar year, as well as our elected and appointed officials uh, in their work, uh, the important work that we do in this community. So thank you all. It means it'll be an extra long prayer. <laughs> one thing I did learn from uh, Pope Francis when he first became Pope uh, he spoke before all the media that had been reporting on the, his election, and uh, he said in a very kind, understanding way that he says when he looks out over people, he recognizes that there are people from so many different backgrounds and different faiths and different beliefs and different relations with God. And so from that perspective, today we all come from different places. We're all not Catholic. We're all not Christian. We share in the common good of caring for our brothers and sisters, and that's why we gather this morning. So maybe just take a second before we pray to call to mind the presence of God, the God that you know, the God of your heart, and the God of your peace. Creator God, we pray that in your midst we come together to work for a common cause of increasing the quality of life for all of our brothers and sisters, both mentally, physically, and spiritually, that we create a world in which they can find peace and happiness and wholeness, that families can thrive in unity and in safety. We ask that you bless all of our legislators, those who work to serve the common good to elected offices. We pray today in remembering especially Maryland Hospital Associate, President Griffith, to bless her and her work. For all of them, with wisdom and with kindness and compassion, to seek always the common good. To know they're supportive of our prayers and our wishes for them and for their families who sacrifice their long hours. We ask that you bless them in all that they do. Amen. Amen. So that will conclude. Uh, please help yourself to uh, the remainder of our breakfast.